You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Today's interview might be a bit different from what our listeners are used to, but we think it's crucial to recognize the many arenas of life where gender identity beliefs get elevated. Not only do they get elevated in progressive or classically liberal institutions, but even within religious institutions, which you might think are inoculated from a radical gender identity takeover. Our guest, Bernard Randall, initially studied classics and ancient history, the subject of his PhD, but after feeling the call to ministry, he added theology to his studies and was ordained in the Church of England in 2006. After a spell in parish ministry, he entered educational chaplaincy in 2011, first at Cambridge University College, then at Trent College, a fee-paying K-12 school near Nottingham with the Church of England Foundation. He had a general awareness of the issues around gender and gender identity, but was forced to face these head-on in 2018 with the arrival in his school of Educate and Celebrate, a pro-LGBT plus program. Randall completely agreed with the organization's aim of eradicating homophobic bullying, but when staff were instructed to charismatically chant, smash heteronormativity, Bernard felt that this was at odds with Christian beliefs. When a pupil requested in 2019 that he give a sermon in chapel outlining some of the differences between traditional Christian beliefs and LGBT ideology, he decided to take this request very seriously. He carefully crafted the sermon to honor everyone's right to believe what they believe. He encouraged pupils to make up their own minds about these contemporary LGBT issues, but also to respect those with whom they disagreed. He was initially sacked for gross misconduct, but then reinstated with a final written warning and censorship of all his sermons. When COVID struck, he was put on furlough and eventually made redundant. He sued the school for religious discrimination and unfair dismissal. The court hearing was in September of this year, with the results not likely to be handed down before January 2023. We think this was a pretty remarkable discussion. In addition to Bernard's story, we also delve into some of the philosophical and therapeutic issues around things like D-trans, ex-gay, emotional fragility, and whether or not we put enough trust in young people's resilience. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Bernard Randall. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing really well. We're, we're very glad to have Bernard Randall here with us today. So thank you so much for joining our program. Well, thank you for having me on. Sure. So uh, as, as usual with our guests, um, we like to kind of go back and understand how they came to do the work that they're doing. And then, of course, we want to hear all about your court case, because, of course, that relates to gender identity and teaching of it in schools. But you, you're an ordained minister. Can you share with us a little bit about, you know, what got you interested in pursuing that path? What does 
that look like uh, day-to-day life of Bernard Randall, and then we can mm. go from there. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a funny question to ask in a sense because the obvious answer is, well, God got me involved in it. <laughs> um, I uh, I was asked that one time at a, a university reunion. Someone said to me, "Why why did you choose to get ordained?" And I said, "Well, God," and and that's uh, <laughs> and they said, "Oh, God." <laughs> Um, but yeah I grew up in a church family my dad was actually a vicar now retired Um, so it was definitely in the the sort of milieu Um, and growing up you know especially as a teenager people would always say to me oh are you going to follow your dad's footsteps and I always said no not a chance there's no money in it Um, but then I I went off to university studying classics and ancient history Um, there's a lot of money in ancient history (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> Eventually, there might be more than being a vicar, but yeah, not much. Um, anyway, so um, while I was doing my PhD, uh, I, I got the, the the call for ordination. Basically, you know, God got hold of me and said, "This is what I want you to do." Is is basically the the simple explanation. I'd always been a church goer. Um, I have two brothers, neither of whom ever go near the place, um, but it stuck with me, and um, yeah. That's that's the simple answer. Sort of um, in my twenties, I thought, yeah, no, I think it might be the thing I'm called to do, and tried to resist it for a while. But eventually, there was there was obviously what I had to do. That sort of sense of internal drive, I suppose. Um, put myself forward for ordination, and the the church and the Church of England has all sorts of processes for checking people's vacation. You can't just roll up one day and say, I'm going to be a vicar. Um, and they confirmed the ordination sort of vocation and sent me off to train. So it was three years training studying theology. Uh, so yet more education. Um, and then you do three or four years as a, a curate, a sort of apprentice to a, a more ex- experienced priest, uh, and then go off and, and do your own ministry, depending on what that might be. So I did a bit of parish ministry and then um, into educational chaplaincy. That's sort of having done a lot of education myself, that felt like a natural place to be. Well, and when they ask, do you mind me asking? I don't. I don't think I've ever met any vicar or reverend. Um, when they ask, they're checking your vocation. That's very interesting. It almost reminds me of somebody who might be checking somebody's uh, somebody's beliefs before they, as therapist, before somebody embarks on a very big decision. Um, is it similar to that, or is it in another way? Um. I guess it probably is. Yeah, I'd never thought of it that way, not spending lots of time with therapists. But um, yeah, no, I suspect it probably is. There's a, there's a sense in which you're, you're talked about uh, why the Church of England, you know, do your beliefs actually fit reasonably well with the Church of England's beliefs? Is it this the right place for you? Um, you know, what's your spiritual life like? What nourishes you? Um, you're asked, you know, what is your relationship with God and Jesus and what does this all mean to you? Um, and they're looking for someone who who has a, a depth of faith and an understanding of what you're letting yourself in for, um, but also someone who they think is going to stay the course because it's the sort of thing where people can get really enthusiastic and, and you know, they've, they've suddenly converted and they're all driven by this enthusiasm. But then after three or four years, it sort of fades away and, and oh, I didn't really mean it after all. So they want to check that it, it's, it's deep and abiding. Um, so the, the process to, to get approved for ordination can take anything from nine months minimum to four, five, 
10 years, depending on some people are sold, no, go away, come back in a while after you've done something, whatever it might be. Um, so I think it took me two, two and a half years going yeah, wow. through the system gradually just sort of uh, and you do placements in churches that are not like your home church so that you know kind of what the different things out there are and you'll know that you're realistic about it i've he- i've heard of loads of people in ireland loads and loads who joined the seminary to become a you know a catholic priest and ultimately didn't get through and are now very happy that they never became priests or yeah. nuns. but it, it, it yeah it's not an unusual story certainly yeah wasn't a few decades ago it's it's, it's a common yeah. one i mean i don't want to jump into a different arena but that's so interesting that like they actually want you to be really thoughtful and careful because they know that the passions of the soul can be overwhelming yes and that it can l- lead people into maybe a fantasy idea of what it would mean to be a priest or i mean obviously i don't need to draw the parallels for our <laughs> listeners here but wow, isn't that nice to have a mindful, thoughtful process where you're also exposed to different types of churches because you may not like them. And then you really have to do some soul searching. That's really amazing. And yeah, you were I'm, young when you made these decisions. You were in your early 20s, right? Um, I was well, sort of mid-20s when I started thinking, actually, ordination might be the thing after all. Um, and I went off to train, I think it was 29 um, so ordained at 32, 33, whatever it was. Uh, yeah. Trying to okay. work out the maths of how old I am. Yeah. Sure. Um, okay. But yeah, they're definitely there. In a sense, they almost try to put people off because as with mm-hmm. many professions, yeah. if you're the wrong person doing that, it's a disaster. And and a, a vicar who's given up on God is is not a good thing for a, a community to no experience. It does feel very like I, I know identity is the new word these days, while vocation was, you know, almost the old word for, for that. If you thought, I know you, yes, you could make an analogy somewhere along those. Lines. You, you definitely could, but I think um, a key distinction I would always want to draw is that a vocation comes from outside, whereas identity is talked about as coming from inside. And actually, mm. I think one of the um, key insights that religious people might have in this sort of field is the things that we are given from outside are often much more important than what's from inside. Um, so the notion of being created in the image of God, that is given to us, whereas a lot of you know identity politics and whatever effectively seems to be man-made in the image of man. We make ourselves how we want to be, um, and given how foolish, let us say, some people can be, most people are sometimes, making ourselves in our own image is often not going to be a good idea, I would suggest. Yeah, for sure. So when you when you got this calling, I, I imagine that's very personal, but is there anything you'd be willing to share about how that felt or what that experience was like? Oh, um, I think that's quite difficult to describe really um it's that there's this sort of quiet compulsion there's a sort of nagging away at the back of your head that you can't get rid of um a sense that you can you can see a job that needs doing and you're able to do it and it would be it would just be wrong it would somehow be immoral or or not true to who you have been made 
to turn away from that job and say, oh, I'll let someone else do it, or actually it's not that important the job after all. But actually, you keep getting drawn back to this sense of, you know, I have to do this. If I'm going to be me, true to myself, then I have to do this. I'm, I'm being pulled and pushed and drawn in this direction. Um, and sometimes you go there willingly and sometimes you think, oh, no, do I have to? Mm, this but, is very familiar. <laughs> After a period of time, the answer is yes, I do have to. This is, this is That's just... how Stella feels every night when she has to make dinner for her children. Well, no, <laughs> this is how I felt. Well, maybe that too, definitely. But um, this is how I felt after I, I did the film. And I, I was determined. I was releasing a book on anxiety. I'm a general psychotherapist. I was determined I wasn't going to become narrowly involved yeah. in gender. I was just going to go back and I was you know, going to continue working with gender because I had uncovered an awful lot of very interesting stuff. But I was not going to be, you know, specialized or narrowed into one thing. And I was determined I wasn't going to be. And I, I, I valiantly tried. I yes. really did. I remember that. I remember did that, you? Stella. You yeah, were like, no. well, my website has to show all the different things that I do. I don't want to just become the gender person. And you were always doing media interviews yeah. to make sure to spread yourself yeah, broadly. Always. But yeah, it feels like a responsibility because you you recognize in yourself the ability to help in some particular way that if yeah. you neglected it, it would be like taking the easy road out or yes. something. Yes. And and I think, you know, speaking as a, as a Christian, as, a, as an ordained priest is, is, you know, it's it's you've been given particular abilities you've been made to be the kind of person you are um and and as a result of that there are particular jobs that are set out for you and and lots of christians will talk about you know god has this plan for your life and i i wouldn't necessarily use that language very much myself but on the other hand i can look back over things and go oh yeah actually that has turned out not as i expected but rightly um, so one of the things about being involved in court cases and whatever is, you know, you have to have a certain stubbornness <laughs> and you have to have a certain commitment to the cause. And if I had been perhaps less of a, a well, sometimes bloody minded sort of person, I probably wouldn't have stuck with it. I'd have gone, this is too much. I can't do this. But I, I, I have felt compelled, you know, I, I just have to do this. Because if I don't stand up for what I understand to be truth, who is going to? Um, and when you get ordained, one of the things you're basically saying in, in the sort of public ordination service, promising to the bishop who ordains you is, I am going to be someone who stands up for the Christian truth. I'm going to be the public face of this. I can't now shy away. Um, so, you know, having made that promise, promises matter to me. Um, and that's quite unfashionable in this day and age. But you you make that sort of deep promise and you live by it. Um, and I think that's essentially what I've tried to do all the way through. Well done. Um, 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 am I right in thinking you, you became a school chaplain or that's what I would call it? Is that the same? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And did you would you have been known as as a very holy chaplain, a very holy man, or was it... <laughs> I, I doubt it. Yeah, do you I don't wear know. it lightly in your day-to-day -day life? I, I mean, I think, you know, I always wore the clerical collar 
around schools where they could, you know, there was no hiding who I was. Uh, and, you know, sometimes people would comment on how nice that was, that they knew exactly what they were dealing with. There was no hiding it away. Mm-hmm. Not all school chaplains mm-hmm. do wear the collar. And that's, that's you know, mm-hmm. different people, different styles of ministry, different Very personalities. Yeah. That's fair enough. Um, but I always would. And, um, you know, people would, um, you know, pupils especially use the, the name of Jesus as a swear word quite often, you know, as people do. And if I'd hear it, I'd, I'd sort of give a, a joking, or I don't think he's got anything to do with it, or something like that. I wouldn't tell them off, but I'd just sort of gently... I've got the picture of you. You know what you're doing kind of stuff. Um, and and so, yes, I was clearly what I am as a, a Christian minister, but I, I hope not holier than now and, and distant. Um, one of the things we had in the school was an annual... Um, football match between staff and sick formers and from one of the boarding houses um, in aid of children in need with a charity uh, in Britain. Um, and the, the staff team would always have more than 11 players, so, you know, rolling substitutions and whatever. Um, and the, the, the volume of support from the pupils watching always seemed to go up when I went on. So I think they had a, this sense of, mm-hmm. here is the chaplain being... <laughs> not a holy person and appreciating that so you know chance of father bernard scores and we're coming on were were sometimes heard which was which i loved it was, it was great and you know then i'd um, i'd turn and give them a little sort of ceremonial blessing just to say thank you very much for your support and and get on with playing the game and so it's it's approaching that sort of with a, a sense of humor i hope um taking what i was doing as as a minister totally seriously but not taking myself seriously that's sort of what I aimed for. And d- did you like being a school chaplain? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, in many ways, it's a wonderful job to have um, because you have this privileged position of, of being able to talk about important things. Um, and I think, you know, spiritual, moral, ethical things are important regardless of religious affiliation or otherwise. Um, so you have the position of being able to sort of give some thoughts in that area uh, that hopefully land home and people stop and think about. Um, and the teaching as well, and, and you know, just sharing my knowledge and my love of learning and, and whatever, that kind of stuff. Um, so lots of it absolutely brilliant. I mean, it turned out it wasn't the best school to be a chaplain in for mm. reasons we'll go into, I guess. But So when maybe we can start now talking about what happened at the school. And I'm also curious about timeline, because, you know, you talked about this, this kind of experience you had at the games. And I'm thinking about, wow, you know, you had a whole history of being a prominent person within this school, because as an outsider, you know, I read about the case and it just kind of drops you in the middle of the chaos yeah. But I think it's important to just get a sense of like, oh, you must have been there for some time. You had developed relationships with all these students and these other staff. Tell us a little bit about your time at the school before this LGBT thing happened and then kind of get into the event sure. itself. Yeah, I joined the school in 2015. Um, and uh, the first year I was there, I did um, classics teaching. Um, and then the second, third years, I did religious studies. I'm uh, just trying to think fourth year religious studies and then I was going to do more classics but so I taught various things that sort of ranging from um year seven sort of 10 11 year olds up to sixth form um a level um so 
being part of that, doing, I ran the chess club. I did a little philosophy club. Um, I joined the, the sort of uh, the cadet force as, as padre to the cadets uh, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, trying to be involved in the life of the school in all sorts of ways, beyond just standing up in the front of chapel and, and leading acts of worship. Um, and it was all going absolutely swimmingly for a few years. And, you know, I'd, I'd not taught in a school previously, so I was learning the craft of being a teacher. And I'm, I was probably not the world's best teacher to start with. and and well, definitely not, and and still not the perfect teacher by the end, but you know, definitely getting the hang of it and enjoying it. Um, and and then in um, twenty eighteen, we had um, a staff training day led by um, an organisation called Educate and Celebrate, which is a, um, a a pretty extreme pro LGBTQ plus organisation. Um, and it's it has a sort of headline thing of, of tackling homophobic, biphobic, and transphobic bullying in schools, um, which is good, great. No one is going to object to that. Um, but also um, aims to embed sexual orientation, gender, and gender identity in the life of the school. And as soon as you hear the words gender identity, someone who's thought about these things a bit is going, oh, hang on a minute. Um and at the staff training, they had all the teachers at one point chant smash heteronormativity. Um, and that's sort of straight out of queer theory. So it's not just this benign, let's be nice to people. It's a very political agenda um, that really, you know, what's going on here? Um, and as, as a Christian minister, smashing heteronormativity, I'm sorry, Christianity is pretty heteronormative for most of, of history, certainly. Um, and they had the teachers, am I hearing this right? They had the teachers shout, chant, smash yes. heteronormativity, and they did chant it. And, and, well, many of them did, yeah. It was, it was peculiar. I mean, I was sitting towards the front, so I don't know how many people joined in, but a good number of them did, some perhaps just because that's what you do, some because they believed it, some because they were too embarrassed not to. I, or... I don't want to labour the point, but you're going, you're given training. I give training mm-hmm. to school. You're given training in school. I've never had anybody chant anything. I'm just, I'm stunned at this. How did that arise? Like, how did they say, and now we will have a chant? It was it was sort of built up to it. So the, the, it was a sort of a whole, I'll say it was a whole morning. It was certainly two, two and a half hour session. It was a long session going through sort of early stuff about how it's okay to talk about sexuality in schools because, you know, going back 20-odd years, you weren't allowed to, and now you are, and, and that's fine. Um, and then sort of building up through the different sets of ideas, um, almost like a, a sort of revivalist preacher, yeah. getting getting the, the audience, the congregation, yeah, whatever, and gradually people. worked up and, and involved in this. And, and it was, you know, it's hats off really well crafted session and so towards the the back end of the session um talking about you know what do we want to do about these various things how do we want to move forward to make sure that everyone is is lgbt friendly and and, you know that the the notion that love is love is is valued by everybody all that kind of stuff that you hear that sounds so lovely until you sort of unpick it a little bit and see what's really going on Um, and then at one point just had up on the screen, I can't remember, there were a couple of other slogans as well. But uh, it was a, what do we want to do? Smash and put to the screen and everyone goes, smash heteronormativity. Really? 
Wow. Um, so, so I didn't join in with that because I knew what that meant um, or had an inkling of what that meant. Um, but lots of people did. And then when we, I mean, jumping forward in the story, when we came to the, the tribunal hearings and people were giving evidence, uh, some of them were saying, oh, well, we didn't join in because it was a bit embarrassing and, and oh, it was just a bit too cringy, really. We didn't take it seriously. Or, well, I joined in, but I didn't really know what it meant. And you just think, if you didn't know what something like that means, don't join in at all and then ask the question afterwards. And that's what I did. I said afterwards, you know, um, I went to the my, the deputy head, who was my line manager, and then actually the head teacher came across. I said, a lot of this presentation is absolutely fine, totally on board with anti-bullying and stuff, but some of it runs counter to Christian values. We need to have some discussion, you know, smash heteronormativity. Um, and one of the other particular concerns was that the the trainer had given this list of the protected characteristics in, in English law. And instead of um, sex and gender reassignment, which are two of the nine characteristics, um, they had gender and gender identity. And and you don't make that mistake accidentally. It, it's a totally deliberate thing. And I knew perfectly well that was not what the law says, and that's importing something completely different. So I said, we need to have these discussions because this isn't right, and it, some of it's counter-Christian values. And they said at the time, yeah, great, we'll do that. Um and then time went by and there was no discussion, no discussion, no discussion. And can I ask, how did you know? Because most people would have gone to that training. They would have heard the chance of smash heteronormativity and been a little bit wide-eyed. But they would have presumed everything on the screen was correct. And that if yeah. somebody says there's a protected characteristic of gender and gender identity, they would have presumed that is correct because this is a professional group have been brought in. They're paid to yeah. produce. This, this couldn't be so shoddy. As to get yeah. such wrong, such important wrong information. Well, absolutely. Well, well, there's this wonderful thing we have nowadays called the internet, <laughs> and you can look stuff up. Oh, thank and, you. And so, um, at the <laughs> thank you, at Matt. the <laughs> at the end of the previous summer, um, that sort of, there had been an email went out to all the staff saying that the staff training at the beginning of September is going to involve these elements, which which they always did, you know, advance notice of what was coming up. Um, and I saw this educate and celebrate thing. Um, and I can't remember if he gave any information at all about him. I thought, oh, that's a bit odd. Okay, let's look at that. So I just Googled them and up came their website. And, and it was fairly obviously a, a very, very aggressive um, pro-LGBTQ plus, 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 whatever. And and so I dug a bit deeper into actually what they were doing and the, and the, the notion of smashing heteronormative um, hidden somewhere deep in the website. It took a while to, to notice it. I saw that and I thought, oh. Hang on, googled that. Other uh, search engines are available, um, and and worked out what was going on. And this this fed into stuff I already knew some stuff about, but I was I was being basically forced to investigate more deeply because actually, as as the school chaplain, moral and ethical matters come under my remit. So, so so you said you already knew some things about some of this. Yeah. And, and this kind of training and the organization and their website caught, prompted you to look further into it. Do you remember, let's say, prior to this happening, how did the whole concept of gender identity first come across your radar? What do you remember before this? It's, it's a bit tricky to work out because, of course, you learn so much all the time yeah. that um, picking what you knew when is, is tricky. But I we had um, in where I lived previously, the church I 
tended to go to when I wasn't working on a Sunday um, had a, 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 a male to female transitioner in the congregation. So there was an awareness arising from that. Um, and then I, I know that in the, the prior year at the school, one of my sick form classes was a, a bunch of um, uh, four boys, all boys, all full of testosterone and, and you know, quite a, an entertaining little group in their own way. Um, and we had some good fun. Um, but we, we'd sort of do this intellectual banter um, and they, they were always trying to keep up with me. And that's that's how I kept on top of them because um, they're big lads. I mean, one of them is sort of six foot eight rugby player. So you, you have to find a way to be the, the alpha in that. So it's the intellectual alpha, if not the physical, because I'm definitely not that at all. Um, and, and they were talking to me about these things that they'd seen on YouTube and they were talking about... Um, Oh, yeah. It's Milo Yiannopoulos, I think, mm-hmm. and and Ben Shapiro. Mm-hmm. And, and I had a look at those, and I thought, Milo Yiannopoulos, no. Ben Shapiro, clearly a prov- provocateur. Um, and, and I probably would agree with a lot of what he says, but I'm not sure I would be totally keen on the way he goes about some of it. But they also talked about Jordan Peterson. And so I watched a few YouTube things with Jordan Peterson and thought, actually, here is someone intelligent and thoughtful, clearly highly intelligent, and looking at some of these issues, and he was doing oh, sort of yeah. Bill C sixteen type stuff, and use the pronouns and whatever. And so I was, I was getting more aware mm. of of the debates. So I was aware of the existence of these issues, but then that got me sort of clued into a, the debates a um, bit more. I'm dying to ask you what happened next, but I just want to comment on something before we go further. You know, not that many people read the booklets, not that many people read the information, and when you said. You know, at the end of year, they kind of flagged, we're going to, this group are going to come. I would say you were one of very few people who said, oh, I'll check these people out. And it reminded me very much of Will Malone. And he was in our podcast a long time ago now. And he saw the details with the Endocrine Society. And he thought, oh, I wonder what that's about. And he read it. I remember saying to him, well, I'd say you're unusual. I would say lots of people don't read it. They just presume roll with it oh I must read it quick glance just beforehand but wouldn't actually slowly study what is being offered and I think that's been really revealed in this world there's an awful lot of nodding along presume things are fine and a lot gets through but that's my little comment yeah now I think you're absolutely right and and you know there is that element of nerd in me um, <laughs> that wants to you know once I've got hold of something I want I to find you. out about it properly and, and learn it um, and, that, and that actually that connects to what I was saying yeah. earlier about that vocation and that sense of God made me the way I am so that I would do a particular job. You know, it might well be he made me a nerd <laughs> so that I would actually follow up on a particular email so that I would then be in a position to speak. A, a likeable so nerd. Um, so what happened then? So you said, yeah, right, that we're did. going to have to talk about this smash heteronormativity. As you said, this is a Christian school and that's fundamentally I think what you think is that's that's anti-Christian because Christian is fundamentally heteronormative. Yes. So there was a kind of a point that smash is a very aggressive word and chanting to me is is anathema to teachers. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 smashing is, you know, that's that's the revolutionary Marxist side of queer theory coming through. Um and that's that's not something you should it's be doing school. in a in a school, whether Christian or not. Well, right. And and I'm kind of just interested in that choice of a chant it's like 
I mean, unless you believe in this queer theory conception that all of us would all be pretty gay if it wasn't for heteronormativity, it's like you're kind of uh, ostracizing probably 95% of your student body if you want them all to smash their own sexual orientation. I mean, it it is a bizarre, yeah. it is a bizarre chant rather than like, <laughs> accept everyone. Like I could see that as a chant, but like smash, smash the straight, smash the straight. Uh, kids. <laughs> well, <laughs> remember, this was in a staff training session. So the pupils probably didn't ever hear the phrase mm. smash heteronormativity, but it, it's like the the sort of the, the the mission statement for educate and celebrate yeah. what we want to yeah. do this is our key goal right. we're not going to tell people that this is our key goal as i said when you go to the website it's not front and center i had to, right. to dig for it a bit um but it's it's you know we're going to set up this program of, of of i think there were sort of 30 things they expect the school to do changing policies and, and putting things in the curriculum um and doing fundraisers for educate and celebrate mm. just to make sure that you know when you've paid them the fee that the money keeps coming in that mm-hmm. kind of stuff um but but uh, none of those 30 things say smash heteronormativity mm. but add them all up together and the goal is yeah this sort of total um revolutionary overthrow of the established order into what they imagine is going to be the the golden world of of everybody being thoroughly queer yeah. and nobody having any boundaries or whatever. Which, you know, speaking as a Christian, I think that just sounds like chaos. And who wants chaos? We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. As you were preparing this sermon, was this something you were like losing sleep over? Were you sweating bullets while writing? Like I'm just imagining, or did you think, oh, this is going to be very, you know, non-controversial. I'm just wondering like how much energy did you feel needed to be invested to word it carefully? Or were you just shooting from the hip? How was the preparation process? Also, just to add to that, was it as a reaction because you had asked the headmaster to speak about it and you felt, you know, he effectively fobbed you off. He didn't grab Yeah, well, we we, we sort of missed out the middle of the story in a sense. So so the the staff training was September, heard nothing about it. And then there was another staff training session in in January with... Um, and it, they had a sort of set of parallel sessions, and and one of the options was what's going on with educate and celebrate. And I thought, okay, I'll go to that. And the person leading it said, we've uh, we've decided to go for the gold award and put in place all the whole program. And I was thinking, uh, hang on a minute, that's not what I was told. That was not what I was promised. Um, so there's there's more of the story to tell. But basically, I was I was not best pleased. But there was it was clear there was not a lot I could do with it. So I was sort of keeping the head down, but thinking, okay, what is the appropriate response to this? And then every summer term, I would say to the pupils, "You tell me what you would like me to talk about. Give me suggestions for topics that you want to 
have discussed were, you know, any kind of faith, spiritual, moral sort of topics. And they'd come up with all sorts of things. And, and the, the week before the fateful sermon, I'd been talking about that the uh, possibility that the entire world we experience is a commu- computer simulation and we're just sort of algorithms in the computer and whether that could make any sense. So, you know, it really was anything could be talked about. But the, one of the people had said to me um, a few weeks before, uh, have you got a spare slot for a sermon? I said, yes, I've got one left. And he said, could you talk about how come we're told we have to accept all this LGBT stuff in a Christian school? And I think the way he asked the question, we're told we have to accept, was really significant. So that made me think, yeah, no, I have to talk about this. You know, th- th- this is my duty to talk about. Um, and so, yes, I put a lot of thought into writing a sermon. And I don't normally write the full text. Um, I would just sort of do bullet points and speak slightly more informally to that but I thought no I need to get this absolutely spot on and say exactly what I want to say what I mean to say and not slip up and inadvertently say something that um, wouldn't be appropriate Um, because I'm aware you know there are sensitivities in this area so I did put quite a lot of time and effort into to getting it right Um, I don't know if I lost sleep over it necessarily but it was yeah it was on my mind in a way that most sermons are not but were you um, confidently like kind of I'm in a Christian school, I know my stuff and I'm going to say something that is thought out and gentle and appropriate? Um, yeah, basically. And and I, I was sort of thinking maybe um, my line manager might say, hang on, why did you do that? And I'd say, well, because actually that's my job. And he might be a bit disgruntled, you know, ruffled feathers kind of thing. But how could they possibly object to speaking about Christian beliefs in a Christian school, you know, in the chapel, an act of worship, you know. Um, Little indeed did I know. Um, And I I was conscious that um, it might be something that got back to parents, that, oh, did the the chaplain said such and such. So I actually sent the sermon to a a sort of local theologian to say, is this all absolutely correct in terms of what the church teaches and and whatever? so that if the school got complaints from the parents, they could say, yeah, no, we do know exactly what we're doing. And this is properly Church of England and, and there's no objection to it sort of thing. Um, not that that helped me either, because the school were unwilling even to countenance this stuff. So I gave the sermon um, twice towards the end of June of 2019. And so on a Wednesday and Friday, and then on the Monday, I was... Um, called in to speak to the deputy head, my line manager, and the school safeguarding lead. And they basically interrogated me on why I'd given the sermon. Um, and um, it didn't matter whether what I'd said was true or what the faith element of it was. What All that mattered was how people were feeling about it and what are we going to do about it. And was the religious aspect dismissed or was it you are being ex- excluding by not flashing heteronormativity or what was the... And also, we haven't really said the main message of, of actually the sermon. Right, the sermon, yes, yeah, so w- worth saying. So, um, I mean, one of the, the the things that probably upset them was I started off talking about Brexit um, because I said that when it comes to Brexit, I think that some people value the economic arguments of, of leaving the... or staying in the EU and some people value the political sort of democratic arguments for leaving. And, and it's not that one is right or wrong, it's just which you prefer. So the different set of ideas is what you vote according to, 
but they're not right or wrong. They're not facts. And from that notion of, you know, there are different competing sets of ideas, I went into um, with regards to sort of Christian values and, and stuff. I've been asked this question, how come we're told we have to accept LGBT stuff in a Christian school? And my answer was some of the stuff you you should accept, you know, no one should be discriminated against. Um, no one should suffer abuse or personal attacks because of who they are. You know, we're all made in the image of God. We're all loved by God. But there are some differences. And on those differences, you can make up your own mind. So you may believe that marriage is properly only of a man and a woman and that sexual activity as an ideal properly only belongs in such a relationship. You may believe that biological sex is real and sometimes makes a difference and can't be changed. You may look at gender identity language and say this is incoherent. You can't make sense of it. So it can't be more than partly true. Um, that was the main thrust. And then I finished by saying, but wherever you fall on these, you know, the most important thing, respect the people you have disagreements with, you know, respect the sincerity of why they've reached the conclusions they have. Um, and, and that's what we have to do, but make up your own minds. And, and that is fine. If you do agree with the LGBT stuff, absolutely fine. No problem. So I thought it was quite moderate. And, you know, Listeners can read it for themselves online. Yeah, I've listened to it and I, I urge people to listen to it. I thought it was moderate. I thought that for me, the main message was make up your own mind, which I think is a, a lovely message to send to young people. It, it didn't feel to me that you were pushing your thoughts, although you were saying you had them, nor were mm. you pushing theirs, but you were pushing the point of make up your own mind. That's That's the message maybe I think correctly I got out of your sermon. Yeah, that's certainly what I was aiming for. So I'm reassured that <laughs> an, an intelligent, thoughtful, non-religious person such as yourself would get that message. Because, yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do. You know, respecting the fact that I wasn't speaking to a, an audience in, composed entirely of Christians or, or even traditional Christians. Um, so, yeah, that was the, the message of the sermon is is respect people's disagreements. And, and then the school leadership. And how did it go all over that? Well, um not well, it turns out, with a small section of the school's community. Um, and actually, the only people who spoke to me directly, uh, some pupils who said it was interesting, thought-provoking, enjoyed it sort of thing later that afternoon. One pupil, um, she said to me that I hadn't gone far enough with giving the biblical view of marriage and sexuality and whatever. Um, so uh, fair enough. So this is the only negative comment someone directly said to me. But then lots of people had gone to the deputy head or the head and, and sent in emails and mostly staff saying we're worried about this. You know, I think there's something interesting here. The mode by which people provide their feedback can really skew the perception within the institution or even the general public about how something lands. Right. Because the kids yeah. who say oh, you know, Reverend, that was pretty interesting, or I really like that, or, well, I don't agree with all of it, but you've given me something to think about. They're not writing emails like that to the administration. You know, they're not yeah. saying, that was a thought-provoking um, sermon. I'm going to have to sit on that for a couple of weeks. It's the people who are enraged who write in. And so that can create this false perception that there was a huge uh, kind of backlash against your sermon or that it was taken terribly by most students. And then, yes, I, I yeah. mean, I just find that to be really interesting that, of course, it's not the moderate thought-provoking perspectives that get emailed to higher-ups. 
And and I think that's, you know, I, I'm, I'm very glad that you've reflected that because actually I tried to say that during the whole disciplinary process against me. And I said, well, actually, most people were probably okay with it. Some And, and very often the people who are very positive about something won't make a comment because we don't generally. Right. It's only the com- people who are unhappy that actually complain. So that skews the thing. Um, and, and that was used against me to suggest I wasn't taking the complaint seriously because mm. it was just assumed by the senior leadership that 90% of people were unhappy. And another thing, too, there's something about this kind of contemporary belief about like words being harmful that also prevents the email writers from approaching you directly. Because like just from having spoken to you, I would guess that had a student or a pupil come to you and said, you know, Reverend Randall, I really felt very sad by your um, sermon. Can we talk about it? Or I was really upset. Yeah. I'm sure you would have given that student space to think it through and talk together. And maybe you would have even reflected on some things they had to say. But th- the way of like just tattletailing on you behind your back by email is part of the problem. Like it does not actually yeah. help us to bridge these gaps. Yeah. I, I would certainly like to think that if someone had come to me and said, here was my problem, then we could have had a civilised conversation about right. it, you know. Um, and actually it was uh, almost all the emails of of sort of, as it were, complaints, some of them were sort of expressing concern, as, as people do sometimes. Um, I think there were 10 separate emails, 10 or 11, nine of those were staff. The staff should be grown up enough to come and have a word with me. And actually a lot of them were were thinking I had said things which I simply hadn't said. Which, you know, people make mistakes when they only hear it once, but they could have emailed me and said, could I have a copy of the sermon? Right. I was a bit troubled by it. Can we have a conversation? And they just didn't do that, which is, you know, it's disappointing when you've got these colleagues who you you would hope would be a bit more grown up about it. Yeah, this exact thing happened to me. I had a former colleague who I had known for years Um, After I left that school where we worked together, she had basically just been following me online and she wrote a formal complaint to the licensing board. Never did she reach out to me or ask me to clarify my position or said, Sasha, what are you doing in therapy with these kids? Like she just built up her own assumptions and took what I believe is the kind of cowardly route to just report me. Of course, it got dismissed, thank goodness. But like, that that feels like such a non-productive way to go about things. And then I, I also, as an American, when I was reading about this story, I, I learned a little bit about this this uh, organization, I guess, called Prevent. You were reported to like the counterterrorism watchdog. Tell us yes, about that. Right. Help us understand because that seems. I mean, we're talking about extreme now. That seems very extreme. Uh, yeah, well, it, yes, it felt extreme at the time. Um, it was, well, it was terrifying, to be honest. Um, so they, they they called me in for this interrogation on the Monday, um, which would, did not go well. They'd said they'd send me copies of the anonymized emails to, for me to look at beforehand. They didn't do that. So I was expected to discuss um, how people were feeling and well, what had been said on the basis of having about 90 seconds to look at all these emails. And of course you can't do that, you know, and apparently I didn't show enough empathy for them. I didn't know what they were thinking. How could I possibly, anyway, um, sorry, I could rant about it and I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but then the school initiated this disciplinary procedure and after I discovered 
in the process of I was sent various documents for that, that that the school safeguarding lead had contacted Prevent, which is the, the government's anti-terrorism, anti-violent extremism organisation, um, so basically a, a branch of the police, to report me. Um, because in that meeting, um, it, they felt that I had entrenched views. Um, but really what I was saying was, well, the Church of England's teaching is just what the Church of England's teaching is, and it's not for me to change that. So about as entrenched as a mathematician saying two plus two equals four. I mean, it just just is. Um, but th- but the fact that I wasn't going to show remorse for what I'd done, and I didn't even really know at that stage what I'd done, was was worrying to them and and, and so on. It's, and it's you know it was a a cultural revolution struggle session. I was supposed to fall to my knees and confess all and and show all this remorse. Well, trouble is, I didn't know it was a struggle session. They didn't tell me this is what you're supposed to do. Uh, and I'm, I was perhaps I was a bit dense about that. I don't know. Anyway, um, so yeah, so I j- just in these documents it said, and we've reported to prevent, and and I have these visions of the secret service and you know intelligence services breaking down the door at dawn and seizing all the computers oh. in the house and. And and all that kind of and so yeah, I'm really really scary stuff. Um, unfortunately, it was only a couple of days until the actual disciplinary hearing, um, and and as part of that, I got to ask questions. So one of my questions was, "Do you think that the Church of England is a terrorist organisation?" And the head said, "Oh, well, no, and and probably we should have told you the referral to prevent came back didn't merit further interrogation." I don't. Yeah, you should have told me. Yes, you should have told me that. Oh my god! Um, so yeah, just emotional roller coaster would would not begin to cover it. And where were um, your thoughts going? Well, well, in, in terms of you know, I mean, I know I'm not a violent extremist, and and you know, I know that I said in the sermon, no excuse for personal attacks or abuse, which ought to cover that pretty well. You know, respect other people is not what you get violent extremists saying um but if if the world is mad enough that somebody thinks that's worth reporting to prevent then the world is also mad enough Mm. that the prevent officers take that seriously and come and visit and and what does that do to my career or my family and just yeah horrifying in in so many ways um so they did that um they also reported me to the safeguarding authorities um, so I'm basically accused of being a, a terrorist and a child abuser. And when you say they, they, who is they? The school. The, well, the, 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 the designated safeguarding lead at the school seems to have sort of taken the lead. Well, that's her job um, in doing this. Um, and I think that she is um, pretty committed to the, the cause of, well, queer theory, but frankly. on what basis? Because I'm not familiar with the, the kind of uh, British safeguarding kind of standards but like on what basis could you could that sermon or your behavior before or after be seen as a threat to child safety i don't get it um no nor do i is it like the the quote emotional harm of it's that sort of thing yeah um and and you know all all the kids will go off and commit suicide from hearing this sermon kind of you know that so you know that's the kind of excuse they use which is not helpful to anybody because it's basically saying you know lgbt kids cannot cope with hearing a different opinion they're so fragile 
And of course, you reinforce the fragility by treating them as if they're fragile and victims all the time, rather than letting them develop their own thinking and resilience and and whatever. So, um, yeah, so there's, there's no rational basis for referring me at all. Um, and it was it was weaponizing safeguarding against somebody whose views she didn't like is, is essentially what it seemed and to come down did to. Did many people contact you privately or were you ostracized or how did all that happen? Well, I was suspended. So people were basically not allowed to contact me. So, I, I, you know, all of my support network was taken taken away from me, basically, in that sense, um, um, which just made me very isolated um so yeah that was that was really difficult um and yeah that summer was was a, a very low time oh um you know because you've been accused of these terrible things you don't know what's going on with your life you know career is potentially over i mean it is over in that sense i'm never going to work in a school again i wouldn't think um because of all of this wow um, so it's 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 tough it's tough. And then I was sacked at the end of August for gross misconduct for, you know, for, as I understood it, doing my job, mm. um, I was sacked for gross misconduct. I appealed, um, to the governors, the sort of board of trustees, um, and they reinstated me with a final written warning, but a, a list of sort of 20 conditions, which included censorship of all my sermons and not broaching any topic around the school that might cause offense to anybody, that kind of stuff. Um, and then COVID hit and they used that as an excuse basically to make me redundant because they said, oh, well, we don't have enough money because um, the income's affected by COVID. Um, and hence legal action for religious discrimination. I mean, you know, Church of England minister in a Church of England school suing for anti-Christian That's... religious discrimination. It, yeah. it shouldn't be possible. It should be a joke. I, I, I want to touch on this because um, I don't I don't know if even for me, like when I hadn't heard of your story until Stella pointed it out to me. And as I started reading about it, I kept thinking about this line that I hear a lot from gender critical leftists, which I mean, I'm definitely part of that circle, which is like, you know, let's say a person identifies as trans, they're allowed to believe that they're a woman, let's say, the male person, Mm -hmm. but they can't force the women in their social environment to believe it as well. And I think this is a very core philosophical question about autonomy and autonomy of beliefs, autonomy of religion, autonomy of how you see the world. So I think this is so interesting that like, even within the, the context of a Christian school, you are an ordained minister, which by definition implies that you do have certain beliefs that you have a right to, that yeah. even you can't express those beliefs while also holding space for other beliefs because your sermon is very moderate. Like, it's shocking because the whole point of the sermon was nobody can tell you what to believe. And that's what radical yes. feminists are constantly saying. That's what the gender critical left is always saying. Nobody can force beliefs onto others. So I think your case yes. is a really great example of how even in a supposedly religious institution, you're not allowed to hold those religious beliefs or whatever beliefs they are. It's really mind blowing. Yes, yes, it is, and I think part of that comes from this notion of the sort of the, the extra vulnerability of LGBT people, which 
you know, many, many people who are same-sex attracted and, and transsexual and whatever do experience poor mental health. But the question of whether that is because they are gay or lesbian or for other reasons or actually they're just comorbidities, as it were, that they just happen to be in the same person is totally unexplored. Or, or, you know, an awful lot of us, I don't know if I've met many sensitive people in the world who've, who've found life difficult. There's there's many, many of us yeah. who have mental health challenges. And, and that doesn't give license to, like, verbally abuse people. We're just saying, like, these are complicated philosophical questions that everybody has a right to think about and explore. Yes. And and might be really yeah. helpful to them. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know there are Christians who would describe themselves as, as ex-gay and, you know, Christian detransitioners, and they would say that their faith has made their life better. And who am I to argue with that? You know, we, we might go, okay, interesting. But nevertheless, that's their, their experience of, of their own lives, that they, they should be allowed to go that way. Um, as long as they've not been coerced, you know, as, as soon as you start coercing people in whatever direction, that's not good. Um, but those, so I think faith does potentially have resources to help people deal with all sorts of things. And if you say, "Oh no, you can't talk about faith in these areas because people are already too vulnerable," you're denying them a source of help. So, for example, I think that the Christian notion of the fall and the fact that everybody is imperfect is a way of saying it's okay to be imperfect. And you are still loved and lovable despite all your imperfections. And if we say that to people, I think that's a really positive thing from which to build a life with the imperfections included, rather than trying to run away from imperfections. Well, th- this is really interesting because this has come up before a couple of times. And I think what you're saying will be heard by some that being gay or being trans, whatever that means, like, I'm not even sure I understand what the word trans means, but that that is a quote, imperfection, right? And that we're all fallen. But the the question of ex-gay and ex-trans slash detransitioner is really tricky, because I think a lot of people get hung up there, because, yes, you know, activists on the, the kind of pro-affirmation side often draw that parallel and then they point to the coercive and really torturous practices of conversion therapy against gay people and I have met a couple of people who call themselves ex-gay too and it's very interesting I mean it's not like people I worked with very closely but it's it's there are these weird parallels like, oh, I just live with same sex attraction, the way someone might say, oh, I just live with gender dysphoria. And then my mind gets a little bit scrambled because I tend to be I mean, I I definitely think sexual orientation is something we we should affirm insofar as we don't attempt to change it. But but it's so tricky. I mean, I just think this is such an important conversation and I didn't want us to just glide over it because I know our listeners are going to be perking up. I'm fully aware of how tricky and sensitive that is. And part of the problem with activists on, on both ends of the spectrum, because you know, Christian activists can be you know, unhelpful in this too, is that they don't allow you to have that conversation and, and explore the space in the middle and work out that what's right for one person isn't necessarily right for another person. And, and yes, when I say 
we're all imperfect. I, I mean that literally all of us are imperfect. So you know, none of us is living exactly the life we imagine that we ought to be living. I'm quite sure. And that's okay. And, and the Christian faith has resources to deal with that and help us towards wholeness, whatever that looks like for each person. And, and, and we don't want to prejudge what's right for each person. But unless we can have those discussions, and that's why the, the freedom to speak about these things from a religious or philosophical or other perspective is so vital, including in schools. Because if, if kids are reaching 18, never having been challenged or never being told you're allowed to think different thoughts on these topics, the chances of them doing so in the next 20 odd years are very low. And then they hit middle age and they're going, why am I so unhappy? Oh. And if only someone had told them earlier, they might have sorted out some of the issues. I kind of think in a way, a lot of the beliefs you might hold might be objectionable to, to, to many people. But I think that the way you hold them is not objectionable, if you follow me. That you, yes. Yeah. Yeah, now I get that. I think that's an important point to make, that I, I believe anybody should have their, their, you know, they can believe whatever they want, so long as they hold it in a way that it doesn't foist it upon other people. Yes, yes. And I think we should always, and it, it goes both ways, we should always be willing to have our minds changed. Yeah. You know, if, if someone comes to me and explains this stuff in a way that I just hadn't thought of before, opens my mind, I change my opinion. You know, that always has to be the potential. And as long as we're open to those discussions working both ways and exploring, somewhere between us, we get somewhere closer to the truth. Mm-hmm. And ironically, as, as a, somebody who doesn't believe in God and who, who doesn't believe in gender identity as this, you know, soul identity, um, I find it very similar. My response is actually very similar to both people who believe in one fervently or the other fervently, where I'm like, I'm glad that that gives you comfort. I'm glad that you have your beliefs and I'm glad you're not voicing them on me. <laughs> and yeah. we can roll along with that. I can roll very, very easily along with that. That's that's perfectly cool. Yeah. Uh, something else is kind of coming up for me as I've been like marinating on this. I think there's... um an underlying belief in the institutions and the the people who work with children, that it's our job to counteract unhelpful forces in the child's life. So, right. I'm I'm thinking about, let's say we've heard so many stories of a person who maybe they were having same sex attraction and they were told by some person or another that that's bad. We think it's our job to help counter that so that they can come to terms with their beliefs or their internal sense of self. And what I'm realizing is like, actually, it's each individual's job to take full responsibility for sorting out those questions. And like, if we have a little faith in the young person, we can present lots of ideas in a way that isn't abusive, right? In a way that isn't coercive, And each individual person really has to sort that out for themselves. I think the same thing is true even for questions of like whether a young adult is going to transition. Like they need to be given all the options. They need to be told the truth about possible outcomes, where this might come from. And some of those facts may feel distressing. But at the end of the day, I think we do have to have a little more faith in young people that they can hold 
maybe distressing, conflicting opinions yeah. and eventually sort it out when they're, you know, old enough to, or, or yeah. they're in a safe environment. Yeah. And like, that feels we, like we're putting too much of a burden on adults to like handhold children to conclusions about everything. Yes. We, we're trying to level out the experience of adolescence. So there are no ups yes. and downs and that's, that's clearly nonsense. I mean, that's just not how life really works. And, and if you do that, you produce young adults who are, who are not able to look after themselves mentally, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, whatever. And, and we need to be much better at saying to kids, this is going to be up and down. Here are some resources. Here is what a lot of people have thought. Here's another thing that different people have thought. Work out for yourself. Explore it. Ask questions. We'll do our best to guide you through these, you know, wumps of, of experience. But at the end of the day, you have to get to the other side yourself mm-hmm. as, as best you can. And and we, we hope we don't lose too many on the way. But if, if we if we if we insist that there must be no child ever experience unhappiness, we're actually also saying no child should ever experience happiness. Because you, you can't have true happiness unless you've got something to compare it to and unless you've earned it really, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, that's that's really lovely. I do I do because I I um I'm aware time is going on and I want to get back to the plot a little bit here because it's so interesting. Uh, even though that was really lovely. So did you prevaricate much about taking the court case? You you they they said gross m- misconduct, which seems egregious, and then yes. you, you know you took the court case and were you happy with the how the court case went and what's to play for now because um. Yeah, I mean, I didn't prevaricate very much about taking the court case because, as, as I was talking earlier, you know, when you've been put in a position and you think this is the truth and I'm I'm called to stand up for this, um, and 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 the truth being the importance of freedom of speech and freedom of religion rather than the truth of my own particular beliefs, and that's the key to to what I'm trying to achieve, so that other people in schools can speak out, say what they really think. Um, so that was an an easy call really i mean not that the process is easy i wouldn't recommend it to everybody um you have to be of a certain character i guess to to stick with Mm. it um fortunately been supported by a group called christian concern who had done pro bono legal work for me otherwise it wouldn't really been feasible um and they've been a massive support so shout out to them um but yeah, so we um, we were supposed to have the tribunal hearing in June of last year and the school didn't get its act together and produce documents it was supposed to. So it had to be postponed. And because there's such a backlog, it got put back, whatever it was, 15 months to September this year. So we had the hearing in September, uh, the sort of evidence phase of it. Um, and, I, and I think that went pretty well. We were, we were kind of happy with uh, how the evidence came across and, and the school's witnesses seemed to be um, inconsistent shall we say, in, in what they were saying. Um, we think that was clear enough. Um, so there were written submissions to go through in October, end of October. The tribunal panel meet again in November. We'll get a result January, maybe February. So it's a lot more waiting. But the, the most difficult part, the sort of sitting in front of a, a court and, and being cross-examined by a, a lawyer, um, I've done that bit and I thought that went as, as well as I could hope. Well done. Um, I, on my mind is, let's say, Kevin Lister, the maths teacher who who sought the consent of the parents before he changed the pronouns of, of yeah. a student. And um, Enoch Burke in Ireland, who who has his own issues, 
but is still in jail, is is in jail tonight, as it was in jail yeah. for the last month, for, for his own beliefs. Now, a more complicated case, and certainly there's an awful lot of issues that are kind of side to the point around he didn't want to call a, a pupil they, them. So it feels like it has really taken off in schools in the UK and Ireland. Have you any message to say to teachers? And because how do you think it's going down in the schools? I, I think it's it's really difficult to know because the people who who sort of rebel against the the gender identity orthodoxy don't want to stick their heads above the parapet for obvious reasons because the the punishment of just being put through the process oh is is pretty significant. Um, but I think the tide is turning. I very much hope that we will win my case and that will establish a, a precedent that people can point to and they can say, yeah, but what about Randall? You- Just as in, in other areas of employment, in gender critical circles, people can say, aha, forced at her. I was about to say, you'll be the Maya. People can say, aha, Randall, yeah. <laughs> no, you'll um, be the Maya for a state or either of the Christians or of the teachers, hopefully of the teachers. <laughs> well, both of, well, of everybody who believes in, in the freedom to speak and, 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 you know, explore these topics properly rather than simply bowing to what the the sort of the diktats of an authoritarian ideology um so that's what i'm hoping for that it will establish some kind of grounds for people to have a bit more confidence and the more people that get that confidence the more people will speak out and suddenly realize oh i thought it was just me but actually it's him and her and them over there and all of a sudden the the, the dam bursts so that's what i'm hoping whether it happens of course is another matter but um well, we're, we're very glad to be able to bring your story to an audience that might otherwise have not heard it. Like like I said before, I wasn't really familiar with this, but this is a really important yeah. story that highlights a lot of issues that come up over and over again for those of us who are interested in this. So thank you for coming on the show and telling us about what's happened and good luck with all the proceedings in the future. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me on. I, I feel it's sort of imposter syndrome because you have such wonderful, knowledgeable people on and there's little of me. Oh. Uh, but it's been great talking to you. Can anybody contact you if they want to? Are you on any social media? Is there any way to contact you? Um, w- because of the court case and because of the, the things that people out there behave like towards people in my situation, I have kept off the social media. Um but I, you've got my details, so if people desperately want to contact me, they can probably go through you, okay. Um, okay. If, if you're willing for them to. Yeah, sure. Would you sure. Like to? Yeah. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, You'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.